you're listening to Art Affairs, episode 19. Today I'll be talking to Caitlin McCormack. So my name is Michael Faith, and this is Art Affairs. If this is your first time listening, Art Affairs is meant to give you a look at and into the new contemporary art community, featuring conversations with artists, gallerists, curators, shining a spotlight on the human side of the wonderful work they do. You can dig through previous episodes complete with show notes at artaffairspodcast.com, and you can check out new episodes on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, if you like what I'm doing here, be sure to subscribe. And you can always connect with the show on Instagram and Facebook at Art Affairs Podcast. All right, so today's guest is fiber artist Caitlin McCormack. I think it was either Jeremy Hush, who I had on the show back in episode two, or Jess from Blood Milk, who originally introduced me to Caitlin's work. And since then, I've absolutely fallen in love with it. She's probably most well-known for the skeletal sculptures she makes using crocheted cotton string and glue. But she started out in a very different way, making very different art. We talk about her early 3D illustration work on the show, as well as the transition from that into the style of work she's making today. Her desire to inject more humor into her pieces, her exploration into more colorful work, and a whole lot more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Caitlin McCormack. Kate, welcome to the show. It's wonderful to have you on. I'm, I'm a big fan. Thank you for, for inviting me. You know, I, I appreciate it. All right. So let's start with where everything started for you, which uh, I believe is in Plainfield, New Jersey, uh, which interestingly is where George Clinton grew up. It's <laughs> fun fact. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I've also, I've also read that like you grew up in the woods. So was that in Plainfield or did you move somewhere else after you were born? Um, even though the name Plainfield sounds like a, like it would be a rural area, it's, it's, um, it's a small city. Um, but there was a, you know, a really tiny hospital there called Muhlenberg that I don't even know if it's there anymore. Um, but that's where I was born. But I, I, I was raised, um, by artist parents in a tiny little cabin on a relative's property in the middle of the woods in a town that wasn't too far from there. Um, which was pretty rural when I was growing up. Um, so, I, you know, I spent all my time in the woods. Uh, it's, it's since become very built up. There's just these like mega mansions, developments, you know, with the tiny little trees that haven't grown yet, <laughs> which is really weird contrasted, but with the, you know, the woods that I spent a lot of time in. They, you know, they, the thing people always say is that they, they name the developments after whatever was there before they cut all the trees down. Oh, that's sort of depressing in a way. <laughs> yeah. This is going to be really depressing, this whole thing. I'm sorry <laughs> to break it to you, but 
And and I've heard I've heard you refer to yourself on more than one occasion as having been a, a feral child, which I think is very visceral. Um, I'm I'm picturing like Lord of the Flies, headband and hatchet, like running around in the woods. Was that what your childhood was effectively? Yeah, a lot of like inexplicable hole digging, <laughs> and, like you know, running out of the woods with handfuls of worms and and like chasing deer and rabbits yeah it it was I was by myself all the time and um you know my parents they never discouraged me from you know being an expressive weird little kid they they kind of raised me in this bubble where I wasn't aware of social norms and um you know entering the public school system was like a very harsh awakening Mm. um, because it you know didn't really mesh with my understanding of the world at that time. You you mentioned that your parents were artists. What kind of art were they making? They they both work in a bunch of different media. Um my mother works with collage. Um she has a sort of a similar approach to material that I do. I, I mean I probably, you know, my my own approach probably is derived from her own um because she let me use a lot of her materials when I was a kid and she collects things from um sources that are near and dear to her and and um you know, pieces of garments that have some sort of significance in the, you know, the context of her life. And uh, she she does these collages where she applies materials and then paints over them with oil. Um, and she uses, um, you know, magazine clippings. And sometimes she's done some work with um, photocopy distortion, Xerox distortion, which is, is was really strange for me because my mom is um, defiantly anti-technology. And it was just really strange <laughs> that to see her use a Xerox machine, even though that's not new technology, she refuses to use anything, um, you know, that is not totally analog. So, I mean, I'm not smart enough to know if a Xerox is even that technologically advanced. I, I obviously am very similar to my mom. Um, and my dad is a sculptor and a painter he makes guitars that look like brains. Oh wow! Or uh, yeah, or he made a guitar that looked like a an M sixteen. Um, not he's not he's very anti gun, but um, yeah, he he does all kinds of things. He was he did performance art in the nineteen late nineteen seventies. He was a musician. And and your your grandparents were also very artistic as well, right? Didn't your grandfather carve wooden birds? Yeah, um, my grandfather worked for the the um, the USPS and, um, was, I think he had a pretty, I mean, he fought in world war two and then he had that job and I think he was pretty burnt out and he started making these wooden birds from kits that you would send away for, I think when he retired. Um, I don't really know what the timeline of that looked like, but I know it was way before I was born or at least a little bit. And, um, the, yeah, the birds were beautiful. He, he carved them with knives and he used a pyrograph tool to burn his, the basement smelled amazing. Like it smelled like burning cedar and, and, um, all different kinds of wood. And yeah, it was really great. And then he would paint them. They, they look real. There's a, I have a bunch of them and they're kind of like scattered throughout the homes of everyone in my family. Oh, that's amazing. And, and then obviously your, your, your grandmother did crochet work, which is where you learned it from. Uh, how old were you when, when you learned that from her? I was about four. Um, oh, wow. 
Yeah, I, I would, uh, my parents could, you know, we, we were really super low income. Um, we did not have any money at all. And, you know, my parents couldn't afford a babysitter. So if they ever had to do something, I, I just spent a lot of time with my grandparents. And, you know, I, instead of buying toys, I sort of had to make objects for myself. Um, and my, uh, my grandmother took it upon herself to teach me how to crochet because you could, you know, that's a skill that you'll really, that'll really carry you through your whole life if you, if it fits into your, your mindset. Um, yeah, she was really strict, but I, I'm glad that I was taught by her because I, I think I learned it the right way. And, and, and so then, you know, was it your family's various creative pursuits that sparked your own interest in the arts, just being exposed to it all the time? I can't say that that wasn't 100% the, the cause, you know, I'm, I mean, I, yeah, that had to be it. I, you know, I, I don't know if it was a, an intrinsic quality as soon as I like emerged from the womb, you know, I, I probably was like a really useless nugget slug person before my parents were like, make something out of this. You know, I, you know, I was always drawn to using my hands and pretending, um, you know, I don't think I had a choice really with the upbringing I had. So then like at what point did it become something, you know, not just something that you were doing for fun, but something you actually wanted to go to school for and actually make a career of? Like when did you start taking it seriously? Hmm. That's an interesting question. I mean, I, I think um, because I grew up in a real low income setting, uh, my parents encouraged me to be enterprising when I had the urge to, you know, behave that way. Um, you know, that, you know, when kids are like nine, they start to realize like, oh, I could sell this thing or I could, I, I could have a lemonade stand or I could, I could make money beyond, like, I never got allowance. I just did stuff around the house cause I had to. And like, I think, um, I remember like making little poetry books I guess now you would call them zines and, and selling them with little drawings and things and um when I was a kid I, I was like I would be really cool to make a living out of this but I you know I saw my parents struggle a lot in the art community and not make a living um not that has nothing to do with the quality of their work but it's just you know the 1980s and 90s it was so competitive and it's even more so now um but yeah I I, I think you know all all throughout my life, I was like, this is probably what I'm going to do. I, I have, I am so aimless in all other aspects. Like I have no idea. I, I have a, an existential crisis every day at a minimum about like, what am I going to do when I can't do this anymore? <laughs> Cause I'm, you know, very insecure. I mean, was that distracting to you? I mean, it, balancing that thought of, you know, marketing my skills or making money versus just doing what you love, you know? Yeah. It's it, the two things feel so disparate, and like I mean they're they're obviously tethered to each other in a really profound way, but the the mindsets that you need to balance are seem for me personally just from two ends of the spectrum, and it is kind of a mind fuck to to combine them in a way that's sustainable, if that makes any sense. No, for sure. Yeah. Um, so then you ultimately went to school at uh, University of the Arts in Philly, uh, where you live now. Uh, were you and your family like living in Philly at that point or did you move to Philly just to go to school? 
I had never been to Philadelphia before in my entire life. I um I was going to go to Pratt um and I was, you know, I was accepted and I was all set to go there and I went to this um pre-orientation picnic. I was going to study film at Pratt um cuz I I love film. Um and I just felt very disconnected to the community there for some reason. Um, I think, you know, it, it probably was my massive all all consuming inferiority complex that just took hold and was like, you don't deserve to be here or something. Because everybody was like this little genius sitting in this campus, this oasis. You know, I there were guys in chef's hats carrying out big silver platters of food and I was just like eh, this isn't this is too good for me but I I think I you know I took a little break from like applying to schools for like a month and then I I applied to UArts and they gave me so much money and the, the reason I applied there was because um you know the the Quay brothers had gone and I I have idolized them since I was you know an adolescent and I was like, I, I don't need to go to Philadelphia to know that this is the place for me because these people that I've looked up to for so long, were, you know, they went to this school. And that was my, right, that was my, that's the reason I'm still here. <laughs> well, and, and your main focus going in was uh, illustration. And, um, you know, when you were first entering school, what, what kind of art were you interested in making? I, uh, I originally was going to go to UArts for film. And I took a bunch of film courses. and um, I had this freshman 3D sculpture teacher named Larry Donahue, who, um, God, I, I loved him. He, he, he was terrifying the first day, but, um, man, he's so inspiring. And I, at a certain point, you were supposed to choose between taking a class that was more on like a film tech kind of track or to continue taking um sculpture courses you know tactile media and i was like i i'm a sculptor that's mm. that's what i want to do and um yeah that that's what really determined my my course i think in, in terms of school um and the reason that i pursued illustration was because i liked that the uarts curriculum offered a really well-rounded um assortment of courses in drawing and painting and conceptualization um and also like web design and things like that i thought it would be practical i also love illustration i, I always have so was your, was your shift into illustration also when you started working in these 3d illustrations or did you do more traditional 2d illustration first um I, in, at uarts you're kind of encouraged to you, the, i think in most at that time, and maybe you know, in the the years leading up to that time, you were kind of. Um, it was understood that if you're in school, you're gonna work in the medium that your teacher is working in. You're supposed mm. there's like a a level of mimicry until you get it right and you develop your own voice. Um, so I tried painting, I tried two D illustration methods, and they like. I could do it. I got good grades, but I, I, uh, it was really unfulfilling for me. And then I realized like, holy shit, I could be building little maquettes and photographing them. That's why I'm here. Like, it's like a, it clicked for me. It was like, this is, this is a one single frame 
from a stop motion film that's posited as a illustration. Um, and putting it at that context made me feel like so shitty because it was like, oh, I'm just doing one single still frame from a stop motion film and stop motion animators do literally hundreds of thousands of these. Who do I even think I am? <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but those are amazing. Do these, you know, these scenes that you're building, did you write or like imagine stories around them? Because they're, they're just so rich. Well, thank you. I, that means a lot. I, a lot of them were, you know, they kind of had vague narratives. Um, a lot of them are based on um, Kafka's Zero aphorisms, which was my Bible at the time. I, I, I love Kafka. I, I idolize Kafka. Um, and uh, yeah, they, you know, I thought that those, the aphorisms were really good prompts for these illustrations because they're so vague yet visually rich and i think that maybe using using them to help develop my voice in terms of communicating a narrative was like a very helpful transition into fine art because of that that obscurity and the the vagueness and um the way that you could kind of hold back some of the information without explicitly communicating everything, which is what you're supposed to do with an illustration. You're supposed to cleverly communicate things as effectively as possible. And I, I don't know if that's necessarily who I am. Mm. Did you ever have a chance to exhibit these works? Yeah. Um, I've, I've displayed the original sculptures and the, um, and the prints, like, you know, high quality prints of them. I, I think I showed them at the Sundance Channel headquarters in New York um, a couple years ago. And um, I've shown them at Arch Enemy Arts in Philly. And um, actually, the, the first shows I had, the first art shows I had in Philadelphia were with prints and original sculptures from that body of work. Um, so it was like a, a real heavy segue into exhibiting art and partaking in the fine art world. Very cool. So college age, Caitlin, you know, what was your career goal at that point? Like, what were you wanting to do with the illustration degree you were working towards? I don't know. I, I am so, um, I am so, uh, my approach to goals is so fucked up and, um, self-sabotaging and like like i i basically adhere myself to whatever i think is the least likely thing i'll get and that becomes my goal because i i want to feel bad for not being able to get it i think that's my that's like this this theme throughout my life um but then when you get it like you're a hero when i get it it doesn't matter to me anymore mm. that's what happens i get the thing sometimes i don't always get the thing a lot of t lately you know i'm trying to to pivot my career into a exhibition art paradigm that is that is a little bit more fulfilling for me like galleries that galleries that have a more diverse roster because that is very important to me um and galleries that that put on show the that facilitate shows that are are conceptually more intriguing um i i, I really want to pivot into that arena and it's it's hard and there's a lot of rejection um but but then still when i when i get the thing i want it's like oh they just like they lowered their standards to accept you <laughs> that's really that's what happens every time it's it's a it's a constant um 
cyclical, repeating, mm. broken record. So, so you ultimately got your your degree in 2010. Um, considering that you're quite a bit removed from illustration now, do you ever wish that you'd focused on sculpture or something differently in school, or was that all just part of the journey? I um, I respect the journey, and I I uh, salute the journey. I I'm into it. I'm into the journey, um, the trajectory. Um, I don't like I don't like reflecting on I like reflecting on things other people have done but I mean I, I'm not I don't even know what I'm talking about I'm very inarticulate right now because you're like one of six people I've spoken to in the past <laughs> 10 years I I really do respect the way that things developed um I don't take responsibility for it I think it's just like a uh, you know, it, it's environmental, ambient qualities of my life that contributed to that. But I, I do wish that I had pursued um, fibers, I think. But I don't know if it necessarily would have been fulfilling for me because, especially at UArts, there's a, there's, at the time, I think there was a, a heavy emphasis on craft in the fibers department. And I don't know if I necessarily would have benefited from that because what I do is kind of a mangled approach to craft anyway. Um, I had a teacher, I had a professor um, named Chrissy Day who taught this experimental costume and performance class, which was in the crafts department. Um, I took that as an illustrator and that, that was another life-changing pivoting moment for me. You know, I, I learned how to create a wearable fine art object with a clearly communicated narrative, wow, which is communicated as a performance instead of as an illustration, and that was like she she changed my life. Chrissy Day changed my life. She's one of the most amazing people I've ever met, and she's an incredible artist. Does she still teach there? She teaches at in in at MICA, I think, um, but I can't be quoted on that. Um, she's definitely still a teacher, and that's that's like a gift to the world. <laughs> seriously. Yeah, that's amazing. So once you graduated, did you stay in Philly or did you move away and then come back? I stayed here. I, um, yeah, my senior year of college, I moved to this amazing house in, uh, what is called the eraser hood. So, um, it's, it's North, it's, it's North of Chinatown in Philadelphia. And it's, um, where David Lynch was living when he went to PAFA. Okay. Um, it's right near Pafa, and it's it's this industrial kind of wasteland. Now it's being built up, but when I lived there, it was just these like massive landscapes of the skeletons of factories and the Reading Viaduct and telephone lines and pigeons. It was like these vistas were amazing. I loved living there so much. It was it was so cool, and my landlord. Um, whose name is Ross Mitchell is actually someone that I'm still in communication with today. He he's in the arts in Philly, and he's actually been really supportive to me. So it that was a yeah. I I really couldn't. How could I leave Philly when that was where I had positioned myself? You know, after before and after graduating, I just you know it was hard. I I couldn't justify leaving the situation because I I loved it so much. 
Well, and there seems like, and this is from you know outside looking in, there definitely seems to be like a very strong community there. Um, that that was something I was really talking to to Jeremy about several episodes ago. Um, you know, there's Jeremy and Sophie and everything that they do with the convent, and then there's Jess and the whole blood milk gang there. Yeah. You know, there seems to be a really strong tight-knit community. What do you think it is about the art scene there that has established that sort of community vibe? I mean, it's a small city. You run into people a lot, you know. Um, everybody has dated someone else that someone else, you know, dated. It's very incestuous, but I I, I mean, I don't know if this is nece- necessarily true for anyone but me, but I, I think that the proximity to New York really... Um, is what creates that tight knit community because there's this like inferiority complex and and like a underdog kind of syndrome <laughs> you know when, when you're in Philadelphia and you're so close to this like huge you know perpetually celebrated um part of the art world in New York and Brooklyn um i think people in Philly feel like they really need to support each other to exist at all in the shadow of that. Um, and when I say the shadow of that, I don't, I don't mean to demonize it. Like I, I, there's so much art in New York that I am just like totally obsessed with and couldn't exist without. Um, but it is hard to, you know, it's like having, it's like being the next door neighbor of the coolest kid in school. And you're just like a big dork, <laughs> you know, but not that Philly's not a big dork. Philly is like secretly, very cool. So what kind of work were you doing like right out of college? Did you have like day jobs just to keep, you know, the lights on? I worked at a mid-century modern furniture store. I was the only employee. And because I was the only employee, I couldn't take breaks, so I couldn't pee. So did you work like every day they were opened? Uh we I worked there 5 4 4 days and then 5 days a week. Um and I just sat there like desperately having to pee until I could leave and then or till I till my shift was over and then I could lock the door and finally pee it was like yeah it was it was this this time of just having to pee so bad <laughs> but I but no one ever came in oh sorry what were you gonna say no no it's just amazing that that was the most memorable part of it <laughs> yeah I it was like very all you know overpowering um you know, but it, it was a great job because no one ever came in there. Um, and, uh, I could just watch Breaking Bad on my computer and make comics. I was making some comics at that time. I think trying to teach myself some new stuff on Photoshop, um, after graduating, um, just doing simple drawings and editing photos of my 3D illustrations. I did that. I was just able to work on my own stuff. Like, I don't care if my my ex boss hears this. He was a dick. <laughs> so yeah, that's what I that's what I did there. Right on. Um, so not too long after graduating, your artistic focus shifted considerably in a much different direction, more into the style of what you're making today. Um, so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that transition, uh, and it seems like the catalyst for that uh, you know, was the passing of both of your grandparents, which was shortly right after you graduated. Um, and I believe that you've said that you used crocheting as sort of a way to work through your grief. Um, was that because it was meditative or was it that connection with your grandmother since she's the one that taught you? It was both. Um, it was both. And I, 
Uh, so my, my grandmother had really terrible dementia and, um, my grandfather passed away first and then she was living alone in the house and, um, she forgot that he had passed away like every 10 minutes to half an hour and she would wake up looking for him and someone had to be there to remind her. And she was like, I saw her on several occasions going through the process of contending with grief of losing her husband over and over and over again. Um, so that was, you know, obviously traumatic for her, but it was also very stressful and, and, you know, devastating for everyone in my family. And I, my belief is that subconsciously I was engaging in this meditative process of crochet um, because it kind of was a, it reflected or was a, it, it paralleled her repetitive process. I, I really do think that I, that was part of my willingness to adhere to crochet at that time. Um, and I was also trying to make, I, I think cause my, my grandfather made those birds and my, you know, eventually when my grandmother passed away, it was like a couple of days before my birthday in January, he died around Thanksgiving. I started to use glue to stiffen the crocheted material I was making because it kind of reminded me of bone um, under a microscope, like bone tissue. It's very lace-like and beautiful and spongy and intricate. So I, I, uh, I think I was trying to make like a synthesis of his birds with her crocheted materials as like a totem or like a weird homage to you know, who they had been in my life. Um, part, it was just probably all part of my, you know, grieving process and my own, my inability to be very expressive on a surface level about my sadness. Well, and were you thinking of these as, as actual like works of art at first, or were they just things that you were making, um, you know, for yourself to process your grief? They were just objects for me mm. at first. Yeah. They were just, uh, just things that I wanted to hold in my hands, you know? Um, yeah, that was my, I think that I, I needed to have a, um, a repetitive, um, ha haptic thing to attach myself to. Okay. And, and so at that point, did you shift entirely from the art that you were making before, or were you still working on the 3d illustrations as well? I think, because I got a, I got a new job at a retail store, and I know that when I worked there, I was doing both, both of those uh, things. So I, I think I was, I was uh, splitting my time between the 3D illustrations because I still thought that maybe I could pitch these things to an art director. No art director should ever get an email from me. You know, I, it's just I would never wish that on anyone. Um, Jesus. Um, but yeah, then I was, I was also kind of silently working on the crocheted stuff. It, it still felt a little too personal to even share, but I was making it. Okay. And, and, and we'll dive deeper into your process in, in a bit, but there's one aspect of it that I wanted to touch on, um, which was, is the fact that, you know, when you first start out with these, you, you tend to view osteological specimens, but then only briefly, most of what you do after that is for memory. And it's very intentional, which I think is, is especially brilliant. Um, you know, you decided very early on that you weren't going to make, you know, scientific anatomically correct skeletons. It was more this separation of 
uh, abstraction, I guess, of your own memory and how they diverged from reality was meant to sort of reflect the malleability and fragility of memory. Um, is, is that, am I understanding that right? Was that? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Definitely. And and not only were you building this into your process, but these themes around memory uh, were themes that you incorporate into your shows and even your individual pieces. Um, so what is it about that concept that interests you so much um, that it's become such a big component of your, your work? Um, from the time I was an adolescent, um, early teens, I, I was really interested in pseudoscience and any kind of like philosophy that presented itself as a, in like with an authoritative tone, like pataphysics, you know, um, the, the, the elevated context of metaphysics that, you know, can't fully be understood. It's impossible to grasp. And once you grasp it, it dissolves before your eyes. I've been obsessed with pataphysics since for as long as I can remember. Um, and, uh, other, you know, adjacent pseudosciences. So something about, um, taking memory and using this like sort of scientifically derived object to contain it or communicate it in a very unreliable sense. Um, but like positing it as this like specimen, this hard science specimen that when you, you have to get really close to it to, to unveil the total bullshit and fabrication. <laughs> um, I, it, it's all like kind of a big joke. I, I really do like, I want things to be funny. A lot of my work really makes me laugh a lot. And I, but it's also really, really sad. And it's about trauma and PTSD and, and, you know, loss. Um, so it's kind of like a weird dichotomy in the work. It's a, it's a strange, like two very disparate sensibilities pulling it at the same subject matter. Um, but yeah, I, I hope that answers the question. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and you know, mentioned, you know, trauma, loss, grief, those are all um, themes that sort of, you know, played a big role in the work over the years. Um, and, you know, these are extremely heavy feelings and, and hard to process. It, clearly, it's incredibly personal work. Um, do you feel that it's difficult for you to open up and expose yourself in that way? Or is that sort of a relief and, and it's an outlet for you? Yeah. Sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's hard. I like um I like the malleability of the intent behind my work because sometimes I can make something that is so heavily obscured by multiple veils of conceptual cowardice. <laughs> um and then I can make stuff that is very forthright with its, you know, acknowledgement of my feelings. Um you know, I'm trying to be a little more explicit with that um, as I as I move forward in my career, quote unquote career. But yeah, it it kind of changes. It, it it depends on how I'm feeling. I'm sometimes I'm very candid, and sometimes I'm I'm really this 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 one's for me. You know, this one's on. You know, you need to. You need to play the game for a little longer before you can unlock this one. I'm not, I'm the one playing the game. No one else is playing the game. It's just me. It's insane. <laughs> so early on, you mentioned that that these were pretty much things that you were just mail making for yourself, and they weren't really intended to share. But at some point, you became ready to to share them with the world. Um, 
and I believe one of your earliest gallery relationships was with Paradigm Gallery there in Philly. Um, how did you first connect with those guys and, and I guess, prepare yourself to share these uh, with, with the world? So um, because Philly is a small art community, um, you get the sense when you are in school that there are certain galleries that are kind of like offshoots of certain programs, you know, like certain galleries show a lot of Tyler students, certain galleries have a huge community of PAFA students that go to them. And it's, you know, it reflects the the different aesthetic sensibilities of each school and, you know, the kinds of people that go there, you know, there's, there's just all kinds of factors. Um, and Paradigm had a real, you know, because Sarah and Jason went to UArts, um, they had a real strong UArts concentration. Um, so it, it, I went to a lot of their shows because, you know, my friends were there. Um, I knew the names of the people on the wall, the people whose art was on the wall. The people weren't on the wall. <laughs> that would that would be a real weird show. Um, but, yeah, I, so I, I spent a lot of time there. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I got to know them. And then eventually, you know, Sarah and Jason reached out about doing a, a two-person show with Jason. Um, and I was, you know, totally thrilled. I was like, someone's offering to give me a show. Like this is, you know, I, I am a notorious self-loathing, sad sack piece of garbage. And I really, I really, I couldn't believe that anybody would want to show my work, especially when I had just like deviated from the thing that I have my bachelor's degree in, you know, it was just totally self-taught. You know, it was really, it was really amazing of them to to take a chance on me like that. Well, and and you've done several shows with them since, um, and, and I think they officially like represent you. Um, so, so what does that mean exactly? Like, what does the modern form of gallery representation look like? Um, I think it's it's actually it changes constantly, but um, you know, they bring artists that they represent to art fairs, not exclusively, um, but you know, they they kind of have your back. Um, you know, you agree to show consistently with them. Um, I don't really know what the exact definition of my relationship is with them now, but I know I have one and I, you know, they're definitely expanding their roster of artists a lot and they're showing people from, you know, they had such a huge Philadelphia concentration for so long and now they're showing people from all over the world because they can, and that's awesome. Um. They have this, you know, immensely diverse group of people who show show work with them. Um, and I am, you know, very happy to be part of that community. It's really cool. Awesome. Yeah, they definitely seem to fit into the the strong community we were talking about earlier. Um, and, and I think I saw that they're actually opening back up. Like, yeah. um, did you see that? Yeah, they're, um, I think, like doing extremely minimal uh, groups of people, or not groups, like individuals allowed in, probably on marked you know they're probably using gaffers tape to make you know social distancing marks if, if sarah is involved with it i know it's going to be a very you know it's going to be very organized very cool uh, so let's dive a little bit into the the process uh that, that you that you use so uh, you know i, I want to break that down a little bit what's the like at the initiation point like what what typically goes into the decision of like what animal you're going to make if it's a skeletal piece um it's stuff like that 
that's getting really more and more complicated as time goes by um, because I'm starting to make all kinds of different things. Um, I don't know. It's like really, you know, there was a sometimes what you're going to make is unfortunately dictated by how much food you have in your cabinets, you know, um, which I hate. I hate that. But I, you know, this is how I make a living. I'm a scumbag. This is what I do. Um, but, you know, right now I'm just kind of making whatever I want. I really, really desperately right now want to make work that makes me laugh. Um, that's, I need that. <laughs> I really need it. Um, but, you know, with the skeletons, with the osteological specimens, um, I would, you know, just focus on a memory that has been popping up in my dreams or, you know, more than usual because of countless external stimuli, you know, reminding me of a person from my past or a, a moment. And I would make a, um, I would try to find a specimen that is, um, close to or related to an animal that I recall being present during the time when that thing happened in my life. Like a squirrel that ran through the, the, ran through the yard when I was listening to these people have a conversation or like the dog that was there when my parents had a fight or, you know, um, those animals bear kind of a totemic significance for me. So that's, that's where the animal sculptures come from. And then once you've sort of had an idea for a piece, is that when you start drawing out sketches and planning out the composition of, of what it's going to look like? Yeah, that's when I, um, I'll seek out if I can. Um, and I'm lucky I live in the Northeastern United States where there's tons of museums at my fingertips. You know, I can, I can find a, uh, a specimen of pretty much any animal, um, a skeletal specimen of pretty much any animal, um, you know, pretty easily. And I'll do sketches. I'll I'll try to observe it in person or find whatever the next best thing is and um, do a, a series of sketches from memory after observing it very, very closely. Okay. And once you've sketched out the piece, how, how you want to, to go forward with it, uh, do you typically dive right into crocheting or are there like additional planning activities that you have to do? Like, I mean, you know, I don't know, like a pattern diagram or something like that. Um, no, there's no pattern. I, um... I have some weird associations with numbers. Um, my mother is really into numerology. I think it's fascinating because it's aligned with the pseudoscience that I, you know, I'm fixated on to, you know, but I, I don't like, I'm not like, well, your persona number is a seven. So you probably shouldn't go out on Tuesday. Like I don't, <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't adhere to it in that way, but I am, I think, um, very obsessed with numbers. Uh, I have some like color day of the, I have some, some mild synesthesia going on and I always have. Um, so the numbers of stitches, um, that I use to construct the sculptures typically will reflect the tone of the, or, you know, the tone or the subject matter of the piece that I'm working with. Like, Oh wow. Yeah. That's amazing. That's, that's a part of it. And that, so it, it's sort of a pattern. Um, because you're working with multiples of certain numbers to generate volume at a ideal rate to, you know, to construct, you know, you don't want it to, you don't want to, there, there's a ratio, there's a lot of math, um, but it's like weird intuitive math. 
if that makes any sense. Okay. So, well, yeah, that's fascinating. Um, and, and then the crocheting itself, how do you typically break that up? Like for the skeletal pieces in particular, do you do like one piece at a time, one like bone at a time? Um, or what's the approach? It's it's individual bones. I break the, I don't I don't draw like a diagram where I, I don't draw the, the specimen and then break it up into different bones, but I, I just visualize it broken up. Um, which further deviates it from its authentic source. And that, that brings it further along on that path of like, you know, like the concentric circles of platonic metaphysics. If I may be so bold to talk about a thing that I don't even fucking know much about, but like, you know, it, it's deviating from that authentic original utterance here. You know, I, I love when things just get further and further and further away from the truth. And, um, yeah, breaking something down without even really having like a full scientific understanding of how this thing's body works is uh, very fascinating. So I, I, I enjoy the process of crocheting the individual bones um, because of my my ignorance. <laughs> well, I mean, you you know more about it than me at this point, I'm, I'm sure. So. <laughs> <laughs> at what point does the glue stiffening begin? Do you, uh, you know, glue each of those pieces individually and then combine them all? Or how does that usually work? I will um, crochet the pieces individually and then I dredge each one individually in a mixture of glues and I lay them out on uh, sheets of plastic or tin foil or on the floor. <laughs> um, I lay them out flat, um, sometimes with a some wadded up plastic or tin foil supporting it so that it creates like a, a ballooned out 3D, 3D form, um, which I can manipulate further as the glue is applied in further stages. Okay, so it takes several applications in order to... Oh, yeah. So many. <laughs> so many. <laughs> and and from what I understand, this isn't just any glue. Like, don't you make your own custom, like, glue concoction? It's, um, yeah, I, uh, I, uh, yeah, it just, like, comes out of my nose. <laughs> it's, like, it just just comes right out of my nose. It's amazing. Um, no, I, I use um, some fabric stiffeners, some glues. Sometimes I use some starch. Um, I've arrived at a formula that is that works pretty well, and it seems to be pretty archival, even though, you know, I, I lay awake at night sweating. <laughs> and probably will for the rest of my life that I'm going to get some like angry call from someone who's like your piece fell apart and it's being eaten by maggots in the frame <laughs> you know you just say that was part of the whole idea from the beginning <laughs> yeah exactly it's a performance <laughs> exactly um, and so how did you arrive at this formula was it just trial and error or was it something you just yeah. sort of evolved over time yeah trial and error you know just like mixing some mad scientists Dr. Octagon, uh, stuff like that. Yeah. You could always make that into a product like McCormack's glue or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I could do that. I could. And so then as far as like assembling it, um, how do you, how do they all come together in the end? Like, do you stitch them all back together once they're all dried? And Yeah, I do like a Frankenstein stitch back. I stitch them all together and then I, uh, I apply glue to the whole thing and I position it. Um, one of my favorite things is that what further personalizes the the piece is that I I'll stitch all the pieces together and um you know it'll be sometimes I suspend it on monofilament from like a piece of furniture so that it it dries in a 
in a position or with a certain gesture that, you know, I'm trying to achieve. Or sometimes it's just laying there and then I kind of like peel it back and I can manipulate it further with more glue. But if it's sometimes when it's laying there in those initial glue stages, um, it responds to the ambient qualities of my studio. So if I have someone over visiting and the, the door, so you have to walk through my studio to get to the bathroom. Um, if the door to the studio is opening more than usual, the, the creature will kind of sway to one side because of the wind generated by the door. So it's like, you know that this piece was made when, you know, on Thanksgiving, because I've had Thanksgiving at my house a couple times. I don't know. I like that part. It's like a real weird nuance, but I, I appreciate it because it's totally out of my control. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, you know, this whole process seems very organic, um, you know, everything that's involved that you've sort of described. Um, but it also it seems like it, it involves quite a lot of work. <laughs> so, I mean, you must be clocking a ton of hours. What is your typical studio practice like? It's just nonstop. I mean, I mean, I have some, you know, sometimes I don't have anything going on and I have like just, you know, more time to be very miserable and feel you know, when I'm not working, I feel I feel like my entire self-worth is based on my productivity and success as an artist. And, you know, when I'm not working, it's like horrible. So I kind of have to do this. Otherwise, I, I'm both stifling my traumatic memories and not expressing them. And I'm like feeding into this like narcissistic impulse to create in order to validate my own existence. One thing that that you do quite often which I absolutely love is is displaying your pieces in these old like antique clock cases. Um so I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. Um do you like have a lot of these uh, did you have the, a lot of these around you as a kid and like this is sort of another way of incorporating memories of your family into what you do or is this brand new like something that you just discovered like yourself? Um there were a couple of them in my family. Um I think I used one, but the rest of them just kind of remind me of those things. But those things are just so cool. You know, my grandfather made these wooden birds. I make my work in part, you know, to pay homage to his practice. And um, I think those those clock cases, they're called gingerbread clock cases. I think they were another hobby kit based practice that people's grandparents worked on in their wood shops and I, I like to find ones from like Cincinnati suburbs and have it shipped here or try to find one in you know at a New Jersey thrift store it's like I think I like to I like to get materials that aren't related to me but you know I can easily envision the story behind it and it kind of like creates this collective grandpa uh I don't know like a collective grandpa coral system that's helped to generate all of this weird craft-based art okay and and once you've picked out a case um what do you usually have to do to prepare it like is there is there much work that goes into preparing it for for your use yeah sometimes you take it out of the box and it just disintegrates in your hands wow you know because they're old and um you know that that the bet the you know the easiest approach to it is you know it comes out of the box or you buy it and it's like stays intact when you walk it home from the thrift store and then you just paint it, you sand it down and, and paint it and make it look really nice. Get a new piece of glass cut for it. Um, or, you know, it just disintegrates in your hands. And I've had to like make, make like 
replicas of the molding around one part out of Sculpey that I like laboriously sand down and then attach and then paint with like a faux bois wood grain oh, wow. <laughs> or like texturize using sculpting tools. I, you know, I, I some real sneaky, janky shit that I've had to do to, you know, make these things look good. But I, I just love them because a lot of them have at least four inches of working depth. Um, and you can really do a lot in there. You can make multi-layered sculptural environments. It's really cool. It's like a little world. Yeah, they, they look amazing. Um, so something I've, I've noticed, and, and you mentioned earlier, is uh, you know, sort of an introduction to humor in your work or a reintroduction. Because I think, I think there was humor in your work back, especially in like the 3D illustration work you did. Yeah. You definitely see that in, in the DNA of what you've done over the years. Um, and and you mentioned earlier desire to get more humor into your work. You have, you know, tablecloth of penises and <laughs> undulating yeah. porn VHS tapes. Of you know what what's motivated this desire to inject more humor into your work? Um, it has just been a part of me my whole life. Like I I um I don't know I I I think I got I, I found myself becoming consumed by this like memento mori message um and aesthetic and i forgot that you can use this to to communicate humor and i i don't feel like myself i don't feel like i am really expressing my thoughts without at least having the option to make something that's like sarcastic or ridiculous i, I just it's just so much more fulfilling for me to do that okay and did you think that that'll result um uh, you know, moving into more humorous work, do you think that'll result in you moving away from some of the, the skeletal motifs? Or do you think that'll always be an aspect of, of what you do? I think it'll always be an aspect to some extent, because I think for humor to register, you need to have some dark stuff. I think that humor isn't like, it needs to be emphasized by something that is a stark contrast. And I also think that like the funniest things are jokes that present themselves as like authoritative specimens or like something that should be taken seriously, you know? Um, so even if it doesn't even communicate successfully and it's just a joke for me, I, I, I don't know, I get a lot from that. So uh, another way that I've seen your work evolve in recent years is is you incorporating more color into it. And, you know, most of the work you've had throughout your career, um, especially with the osteological specimens, has been more in the black and white realm. But more recently, you've you've also started incorporating, you know, plant-based colors, stuff like that. Uh, what prompted that transition into more colorful work? Um, I was thinking a lot about, I think I, I was just missing the woods. And I was thinking about my childhood in like more of an environmental sense and less of a personal, you know, uh, less, less of a fixation on like my body. Um, and I, I, I don't know, it just clicked. I was like, why have I not been making leaves and mushrooms and vines? It's, they're so much fun to make. I love occasionally using natural pigments to dye the fibers. If I can't get a plant color, right. I, I just, I don't know why I wasn't doing it. I, it was, you know, another, another, uh, symptom of the like seriousness that I felt like I had to instill in, in my work. Um, not that plants aren't serious, they're, you know, but they're, um, 
they're more chaotic and um, lively. And I, I just, I don't know. I felt like I, I, I was missing out all this time for not doing that. And I, it's way more fun for me to, to work with, with some color elements. So when you're working on a piece that's going to have color, how early in the process do you tend to lock down your palette? I mean, I have to imagine it's like by necessity, it has to be super early on just to make sure you have all the threads that you need. Yeah, I'll do, um, like I'll take threads from my thread box, which is actually my grandmother's embroidery thread box. The fun fact is that the darkest bright, or darkest bright, like the, the most blood red. Uh, so she numbered all of her little embroidery thread card things and the most blood red colors number is 666 my grandmother (laughs) was this like intensely catholic little italian lady and she i don't i don't know if that was intentional but it's very very cool to find that um but yeah i use her embroidery threads which she like painstakingly organized and i have completely destroyed any semblance of organization of um and i i'll um make some color palette combos and I'll take pictures of them uh, with my phone or, or or I'll even just like use colored pencils to make color palettes and try to match the colors. I really get a lot of pleasure from matching colors with embroidery thread using, you know, finding um, color palettes from like a film still that I like and, and matching the colors. It's like a weird sick pleasure that I get (laughs) from that. Well, and, and when you don't have the threads, you mentioned earlier, do you, you custom dye some yourself? Yeah, I'll use um, some natural pigment dyes and yeah, I'll try to, sometimes I'll collect things from the woods and use that. Well, and, and in that same vein of color matching, I know you recently collaborated with um, Michelle Konchik. Yeah. You know, how, how did that collab come together? Like, was that your idea, her idea? Did y'all just chat about it? How did that we just kind of talked about it. I don't know. I don't really remember who proposed the idea, but we're, you know, we're good friends. I, I like her a lot. I think she's really, she's a really cool person. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm actually looking at the piece right now. We, it just kind of, it's, it's been on hold for a while. It hasn't been really a good time to reveal this piece that we made. Um, but yeah, that, that was like one of the first, major culling, color matching enterprises. Um, and that was very fun. Um, but yeah, I really like her color palette because um, there's a lot of earth tones, a lot of deep deciduous forest rhizosphere kind of colors, muted, you know, brick reds and sage greens. So those are the colors of my childhood. So Okay. And do you like collaborations uh, in general? Is it something you'd like to do more of? Yeah, I do. I, I, um, I did a, a big collaboration in um, at the Philadelphia Sculpture Gym oh, years ago with um, a poet named Kerwin Sutherland, where he wrote some poems and I created these sculptures to kind of um, illustrate the different stages of this like poem cycle that he had done. And that was like the first really intense collaboration I ever did. And it was cool. It was, it, it's it's an intense process to work with someone and you know, you're, you're both making this thing, you're both making things. And then you're trying to balance like communicating effectively to, to create something that can belong to both of you. And it's, I don't know, it's, a, it's, it's more work. Um, it, and I'm not good at communicating with people and I'm not good at being around people or like handling interaction at all. 
I'm not good at any of that. So like, I guess collaboration is like insanely stressful for me, but I also get a lot from it. I like it. Okay. Very cool. So, so let's talk a little bit about what you have coming up. Um, are there any upcoming shows that you're, you're participating in this year? Uh, so I right now am in a show at the Fort Wayne Museum of Art in Fort Wayne, Indiana, which, um, has had its, its closing extended to August 30th, I think. And it's, a it's called Here and Now. And it's a survey of new contemporary art. And it's curated by, um, Ken Harmon from Hashimoto, Hashimoto Contemporary and, uh, Joseph Zimmerman, who works at the Fort Wayne Museum. And they're both really, really, really nice, cool people. And I, I, I cannot believe that they put me in that show because it has like some of my favorite artists of all. It has, yeah, you should check the show out. It's amazing. I, they should not have put me in it. I don't belong there. <laughs> I'm so inferior to everyone there. Um, and I have a, um, I have a show with Allison Summers at Talon Gallery in December. I don't even know if I'm supposed to talk about it yet publicly, but um, I am really excited about that because Allison is awesome and a really cool person. And um, I'm not sure if we're, you know, going to be there for it, if it's going to be, you know, a thing that can happen. Um, so is that, is that a, uh, like a two person show? Yeah. It's a, it's a two person show. I mean, I, I've been in two person shows at Antler before. And, you know, Talon's owned by the same people. And um, there, I've been in ones that are two solo shows in the same room that are kind of like in communication with one another, in dialogue with one another. Um, and I've been in ones that are a two-person show. So I'm not quite sure what their approach is going to be, but um, I'm cool with it being a two-person show because I feel like, you know, Allison and I have similar aesthetic proclivities. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so where can people find you online? Um, I have a website, uh, it's caitlintmccormack.com. Um, it's a, it's a functioning website. Um, I'm on Instagram. I'm a Mr. Underscore Caitlin, but I, I think I might change my Instagram, Instagram name eventually. Where did that come from anyway? What, where did the Mr. Caitlin come from? My friend April calls me Mr. Caitlin. <laughs> And I, okay. <laughs> this was in like 2012 that I decided, oh, I guess I'll, no, it wasn't 2012. It must've been later, but I, yeah, I just never changed it, but I should because it's, you know, like more so the Instagram name of like a 24 year old and not a adult person. Um, you know, right now on Instagram, I'm, I'm trying to just, you know, fundraise and, and I'm, you know, trying to. I'm trying to contribute to the art community in a way that doesn't really focus on me, you know, right now. I, yeah. I've seen the, um, the recent fundraiser you've done. That's amazing stuff. Oh, thanks. I mean, I, you know, I, it's, that's not, it's not about me. It's, I, I just, I'm, I'm really, I feel very fortunate that I, that most of the people in my, my life and in my community are, are they are, um, engaging in, you know, efforts that are very genuine to hopefully change the way the art world is managed because yeah. it's, you know, I don't need to say <laughs> I'm, I'm not educated enough or articulate enough to be the person to speak about this, but I know that I can help. So it's a very good way to look at it. I appreciate that. Um, so last question, and this is something that I like to ask everybody, uh, who is one artist that you'd like to see me have on the show? <laughs> um, I mean, do they, 
Do they have to be alive? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I guess that's sort of built into the question. Um. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like, so, so this is a practical. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Man, an artist that I would like to see you have on the show. Um, hmm. I, um, I really love um, Tia Roche's work. She's amazing. She's so cool. She actually has a raffle going on right now. Um, she's, she's an illustrator in Philly and she is super, super cool and is really like blown up her illustration approach in the past like couple years. Um, her Instagram is dreamy guts. She's super, super cool. She's awesome. Um, I think I just shared her work in a story that I posted today on Instagram story. Um, but yeah, I, I would really, she's really into horror. She's has like an encyclopedic knowledge of horror movies and would be like a really amazing person to talk to. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Kate, I think you're amazing and I really appreciate you coming on and chatting with me today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So that's it for this episode of Art Affairs. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Caitlin. I found it so fascinating what she had to say about memory and the presence of memory in the work that she makes, both in terms of the actual themes for her shows and pieces themselves, but it's also a big component of her process as well. The way she'll go and view osteological specimens in person and really focus in on the details, but then most of her sketching is done later, intentionally drawing from her own memory in order to reflect the mutability and fragility of memory, and how passing it through that filter of her own recollection inherently changes it. I just think that's brilliant. And I think it's pretty awesome that she's wanting to inject more humor into what she's doing. You can definitely see the presence of humor in the early 3D illustration work that she made, uh, but less so once she moved into the crochet pieces. You know, and may, maybe that's partly because that was born out of mourning and grief and there wasn't, that wasn't the right place or the right time. Um, it's hard to say. But the move into more humorous waters definitely seems like a very natural thing and completely organic. I'm really excited to see what her and Allison bring to Talon Gallery in December. Definitely keep an eye out for news on that as it becomes available. And there's one more thing I'd like to touch on, and then I promise I'll, cl I'll close this thing out. I, I fear I may be getting a bit too long-winded at the end of these things. Um, but there's one thing that I really wish that I had said to Caitlin during our chat, so I'll go ahead and say it here at the end. Um, when she was talking about her tendency towards doubting herself and, and how when she's accomplished something she was striving for, uh, she sort of dismissed it as not being significant because you know, they may have lowered the bar or whatever. Um, and I didn't really press on that because, you know, honestly, self-doubt is something that I can relate to myself. It's something I've struggled with for most of my life and still struggle with today. So, you know, I didn't question it because I, I understood it, you know. Um, but what I do wish that I had said is that, you know, for what it's worth, and, you know, maybe it's not worth much because, you know, who, who am I? Um, but for what it's worth, I think her work is amazing. And I know there are thousands upon thousands of people all across the world who also think her work is amazing. And that's an incredible thing, making work that thousands of people like. Like, that is a remarkable thing. 
So I hope she's able to at least take a little bit of pride in that. She definitely deserves it. So thanks again to Caitlin for joining me today, and thank you for checking out the show. I'm truly grateful for your support. If you happen to have Apple Podcasts, rating and reviewing the show there is actually a huge help. And as always, you can contact me through my website at artaffairspodcast.com or on Instagram at artaffairspodcast. So until next time, be good to yourself and be good to each other.